Državljandi, podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody, it's the 10th of October 2023 and you're listening to this episode of Citizen D podcast on the 15th of October 2023. We're cutting it really close today. Uh, with us is Kalen Vogue, Director of Government Affairs and Advocacy at the Internet Society. And obviously we're going to talk about the state of the internet. So first, hello Kalen. Hello, thanks for uh, having me here, Domen. Before we, we dive into the prepared questions, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on the intersection between technology and politics. This is this is sort of a broad umbrella topic we're going to be addressing today. I know it's a it's it's extremely broad, it's it's extremely vague, but but I'm curious to to hear your thoughts on, on the issue or what are some of the elements that internet is turning into a into a prime political topic worldwide yeah sure thank you thanks for the question domen so you know uh for us at the internet society uh just to explain a little bit we're a global nonprofit organization that's focused on building promoting and defending the internet our kind of slogan is that the internet should be for for everyone and i think what makes our organization kind of unique is that we have a really strong global community so you know, in addition to the headquarters, which is where I work, we have over 110 chapters around the world, as well as over 100,000 um, individual members that kind of support our cause and believe in our in our issue and our kind of vision for the internet. And I think, you know, to answer your question, why that's compelling, not just for us, us but for our community of supporters, is that, you know, the, the internet and digital topics are just such a fast-moving field. Um, you know, things are developing very quickly and, you um, the reason that they're intersecting, intersecting with politics is that we see every kind of, I don't know, uh, issue case or political issue being amplified or kind of echoed on the internet. So, you know, when we're deciding about these issues in real life, there's always a digital element that also needs to be decided. So I think they're really interlinked when it comes to, you know, um, things like illegal content, legal content, um, hate speech, uh, you know, health rights, these are all actually being amplified on the on the internet as well. So I think that's why we care about it. That's why our supporters care about it. Uh, and probably a little bit of what we're going to talk about today, I guess. Great, sure. But but to, to sort of further this this question or to, to take a deep dive. So so these issues of, of hate speech, of privacy, of security, of, of all of these issues have been around I'm not going to say for centuries, but but for a while, right? But now it seems that the debate is moving from this um, fairly, I should say, coherent um, coherent battle battlefield where you had like the good guys on one side and good guys would be in the past at least, you know, um, digital digital intermediaries or or big tech companies. And on the on the bad side, you would have like the the evil governments, right? Now it seems like the the, the battlefield is is sort of murkier in, in terms that that there's no good guys here, but at the same time, you know, everybody is pulling to to their side. So so why do you think we've we've come up to to this type of of uh, of situation where? Um, to to put it a bit uh, a bit paranoid, you don't know who to trust regarding these issues. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, if you compare it to the past, I think it is a lot murkier, right? Because uh, I think there's a better understanding in the public about 
the different actors, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the big tech providers, the government, um, you know, good, good guys and bad guys, it's all <laughs> kind of uh, twisted in our minds. And I think that kind of lack of trust is at, is at the heart of this. Uh, I think the pandemic accelerated, you know, um, public awareness of, of this issue, you know, with us moving so many of our activities online. And this process was already happening before, but of course, just accelerated so quickly during the pandemic. Uh, and I think, you know, that really is kind of what motivated, um, you know, a lot more um, scrutiny, I guess, on the actions of different players. And yes, the understanding that, uh, you know, there are, of course, business interests behind everything. So it, it's not as simple as good guys, bad guys, you know, someone who might be your enemy in one field might be your partner in another field because you have shared values related to something. Um, so as you said, it's not black and white anymore. And I think it makes for a really interesting policy landscape. I really enjoy working in this area, but for sure it makes it very challenging as well. But yeah, I would say the public awareness is a, is a key kind of aspect here, which of course then echoes up to policymakers, you know, who have their own views on big tech um, and the relationship between them, big tech and the public. So yeah, very, very fast moving space. And, and speaking of, of privacy and encryption and, and public awareness, uh, we are, or your uh, your organization, the, the Internet Society, is participating in the in the Global Encryption Day that is planned for for the twenty first of, of October this year, and it focuses on the importance of privacy, secure data transfer, and 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 security in that regard. And again, you know, uh, we are seeing now um, more and more like regulation proposals in the in the in the US in in the European Union but also uh, more more global to sort of you know address the issue or or sort of that that try to sort of I'm not going to say destroy encryption but to sort of weaken it right so again uh, to 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 start us off why did encryption become such a huge topic and why is it such an uphill battle to just say, okay, you know, we're going to encrypt everything and to end permanently. And that's not, that's not up, up for a discussion anymore. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you gave a shout out to global encryption day. As you said, it's on October 21st. So approaching very quickly. Um, you know, that's an initiative that we at the Internet Society, uh, we care a lot about and something we were involved in from the beginning. So we're one of the founding organizations of the Global Encryption Coalition, which is a um, coalition of 350 organizations uh, around the world from 104 countries, which, you know, at the heart of it has its mission to protect encryption um, when it is under threat, but also to support companies that do offer encryption to their users. So we want to see more encryption everywhere, basically, if you put it simply. Um, but, you know, why why is this a, a tricky, tricky topic or why is it, you know, um, kind of getting so much attention now? Well, actually, the truth is that this is not a new debate. This is an old debate, which has kind of reared its head a few different times. So in the early days, um, the debate was very focused in the U.S., especially on uh, terrorist content. So, you know, terrorist content online, encryption you know, could be a tool used to give privacy not only to normal people, but also terrorists, they would say, right? And this is uh, an issue for law enforcement, and they need to access, you know, data to to get and do their prosecutions, right? Um, that debate didn't work back in the day. Uh, I think one of the main reasons would be that terrorist content actually wants to be public. It wants to be seen by many people to kind of amplify messages. And so actually the, the the arguments with the justifications were not very convincing at that time. And so the debate kind of died. 
but now we see it re-emerging now and the focus has shifted more to online safety as far as you know child sexual abuse um and some activities that actually do yeah happen more, more in kind of private for example encrypted environments um and you know this is something that of course law enforcement cares a lot about um and so that really has as you said kind of pushed for a lot of these new uh, regulations coming in, um, as you mentioned, they're kind of around the world. But I think an interesting thing here is that um, the leading countries are actually very established democracies. So like two that I would point out would be the UK online safety bill, which um, was actually passed earlier this month. And now it's going through the process of royal assent in the UK, where basically the sovereign has to sign it into law. And then in the EU, we have the proposal on preventing child sexual abuse. Which is still much earlier in the process you know um, the trilogue is beginning in a, uh, in a month a couple months um, and so uh, it still needs to be negotiated but uh, here we see the uk and the eu kind of being first movers uh, in this regulation and um, you know in both of these cases the the regulations are very well intentioned right they're trying to make the internet a safer place for everyone especially uh, children uh, but unfortunately the approach is uh, not only misguided but um, also quite dangerous with a lot of unintended consequences for for other users of the internet and for the internet itself. So I think with these proposals, there's kind of three main points that I would make. And so the first would be, you know, that these proposals, they do threaten encryption, they threaten to undermine it. Um, and that does put the security of um, both EU and UK residents at risk. So, you know, um, the way that these regulations in both cases work is that they're pressuring providers to either weaken encryption entirely through something called encryption backdoors uh, or undermine it through a process called client-side scanning. Should I explain those concepts really quick, Doman? Or... Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I, I have a follow-up question, but but sure, go go with the explanation and then I'll, I'll follow up. Sure, sure. So with encryption backdoors, um, that's creating a key for government authorities uh, to access and decrypt messages and data sent in between individuals. So, you know, um, a point we would always make is that this creates a systemic weakness that is not only used by governments, but could also be exploited by, you know, by criminals and hostile state actors to also gain access to private messages. Um, so the thing we always try to repeat is that there's no such thing as a backdoor that only works for government and not for other people. Um, luckily in Europe, I would say that this kind of solution is becoming less mainstream. Um, instead, we're seeing a shift to client-side scanning, which is basically, uh, those are systems that are embedded on a user's phone or, or another device that scans message content. So, you know, text, images, files uh, for matches or similarities to a database of objectionable content um, before that message is sent. So, you know, governments would say, especially in the EU, that client-side scanning, it's not violating encryption. Um, this is, in my opinion, kind of a disingenuous claim because really it's a technicality because the way client-side scanning works is that the scanning happens before the encryption process starts. So like, yeah, maybe technically the encryption is not being disrupted, but I mean, the whole point is, is being defeated. So like maybe if I use a metaphor, um, you know, if breaking encryption is like ripping open a letter when it's going through the post sorting office, then client-side scanning is like someone reading your letter as you're writing it, reading it over your shoulder. So actually, in the end, the result is the same and your privacy um, privacy of your communications is dead. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the kind of issue with client-side scanning, that it's still very much the privacy is lost. And uh, yeah, um, it is it is a violation in the end. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the security, one thing I also want to mention is, of course, with client-side scanning, this also increases the attack surface. Uh, so, you know, criminals or hostile state actors could 
potentially without the right safeguards, manipulate these databases of objectionable content, putting new things there, removing things, um, you know, and basically filtering and uh, content that could be very legitimate, actually. So, uh, yeah, just something to mention. But yeah, please go go for your next question, Domain. No, no. So, 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 following following your your explanation, I, I find it really. I'm not going to say weird, but it, it's so bizarre to hear um, these political discussions uh, of uh, uh, client scanning and, and, and uh, privacy invasive technologies, where it seems that that these regulators or people who are proposing these uh, these frameworks do not understand the the actual fundamentals of of privacy of of you know encrypted communication and i'd like to hear your thoughts why is it why is this still such a such a misconstructed debate why haven't we in in all these years that we are talking about that we are discussing privacy and security and issues uh, regarding uh, uh, regarding you know uh, child child pornography or other uh, objectionable content why are we still arguing about the the basics the basic premises of of these uh, of these proceedings of these uh, yeah uh, problems well, yeah, I think, you know, part of it is definitely, you know, lack of knowledge or lack of understanding from from policymakers. I mean, these are very uh, technical issues uh, that if you actually don't understand the technology well, um, it's easy to be, let's say, influenced by different viewpoints um, or different information you receive. So if you can't actually challenge what you're being told as a policymaker, you know, you can easily, um, I hate the term, but kind of fall for snake oil or, uh, you know, uh, uh, technology offers that you're told are very safe and compatible with, you know, human rights, fundamental rights, you know, um, uh, if you're not informed, it's very hard to challenge these, uh, these um, um, claims. But then I would say another aspect of this is that, you know, there's always this drumbeat of pressure from uh, law enforcement agencies. So this is like, will always be there, in my opinion, you know, for law enforcement agencies, of course, um, they want access to everything, you know, this is uh, what would make their jobs uh, they claim much easier and, you know, let them, you know, be very effective. But, uh, you know, uh, I, there's something actually I would I would mention to you that you you're probably aware, of, but maybe not all of your listeners have heard about is uh, there was an um, uh, article from Balkan Insight recently. I'm not sure if you heard about this one, but uh, through Freedom of Information, they got um, they were informed that uh, Europol uh, actually sought unlimited, unlimited data access for future data collected through this proposal to prevent child sexual abuse materials, you know, not just data related to child sexual abuse, but also data not related to that, um, you know, including innocent images. And they said that uh, they wanted no boundaries for how this data could be used. So, you know, with law enforcement, I think there is that pressure. And so it starts with maybe child sexual abuse, but then it can really, really quickly go with the scope creep to um, include many things. So I think that that pressure from law enforcement is, is stronger probably, probably than ever. Um, but that will always be there. And it's the policymaker's job to, um, you know, work with different stakeholders and understand that this is just one one pressure and that there are other concerns that need to be weighed up. Um, mm. and, and maybe, you know, uh, uh, talking about these claims from law enforcement, uh, I could maybe push back on some of them even because uh, there's a lot of evidence that more data and, you know, scanning will actually not be very effective. And so these law enforcement claims that it will help make their job easier, it's, it's maybe a little bit disingenuous uh, as well when it comes to the client-side scanning technologies, because uh, 
The thing is that these technologies, the scanning, can actually be circumvented pretty easily by you know uh, criminals. They just would need to add their own encryption themselves uh, to circumvent it. So actually, the effect effectiveness is not clear. Um, and this is, you know, kind of e echoed by really key institutions within the European Union. So, for example, the Europe European Data Protection Board, European Data Protection Service, in their joint opinion, they they kind of argue that abuse will continue because circumvention is so easy. And, you know, another thing we could point to is that more data does not always mean more arrests. So I have an example uh, because I'm also very active in the UK policy area that in the UK, um, a watchdog shared that it takes the UK police up to 18 months to make an arrest after they become aware that a child is at risk of online sexual abuse. So, you know, 18 months is a huge amount of time uh, where they actually have the evidence, but they're not able to act on it because of lack of uh, capacity and resources, right? So, you know, this data and more data, the claims from law enforcement, um, I, I'm not so convinced. And I think a lot of people are, are not very convinced by this either. Mm. I find it particularly troublesome, not just what you've just mentioned about the, the whole the whole um, um, aftermath of finding uh, a problematic content and then reacting to it uh, um, uh, via, you know, arrests and, 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 uh, and court proceedings. But I find it interesting that even uh, the, the, the basic premise of this technology, and I, I, I think I read the same article in, on, on Balkan Insight, that says that basically this technology does not exist yet. So we're talking about legalizing, to, to put it more bluntly, we're talking with the, with the uh, client-side scanning, we're talking about legalizing something that, that isn't there in the first place, right? So, so why do you think, here's my follow-up to my follow-up, uh, why do you think this is such a, such a passionate topic for, for, uh, um, for uh, law enforcement agencies around the world where they don't, again, you know, they don't, not only they don't understand the basics, but, you know, the, the basic, not just principle, but the basic uh, ingredients of, of those proposals aren't there in practice. Yeah, well, you're, you're right, Doman. So, you know, uh, there have been findings from research groups in the UK and other places that these client-side scanning, client -side scanning technologies, sorry, are just not ready. Um, they're not accurate enough. You know, there's different types of them. Some are some are scanning for known child sexual abuse, some are scanning for unknown, some are scanning even for grooming messages, right? And a lot of this, especially the latter two, would rely a lot on artificial intelligence. And the accuracy rates are you know, um, not good enough, um, simply put. Uh, and even if you have, you know, let's make up a number 99% accuracy. Um, if you're talking about a billion messages per day, like on some of these platforms, sorry, but 99% is just not good enough because that's like hundreds of thousands per day that then need to be uh, checked and false positive, false negatives. I mean, this is just not a workable solution. The scale of everything, it just doesn't work. So you're, you're right, these technologies are, are not ready. Um, but why are we still talking about them? I mean, there's uh, a lot of discussion about this. There's been some scandals recently in the EU with some of the, uh, the, the companies offering this scanning technology and where their funding comes from and uh, kind of, you know, their transparency. Uh, I can maybe um, dig up an article in a little bit to share with you. But uh, yeah, th there's definitely strong interest groups involved here. Um, I, I would say, you know, sorry to name names, but one would be 
organization called Thorn, whose uh, spokesperson was Ashton Kutcher, right? Ashton Kutcher would speak at parliaments around Europe, uh, you know, talking about child sexual abuse. And so really that uh, star power, that celebrity, um, you know, it's a, it's a strong pressure. It's a strong pressure. And, uh, you know, this again relates to uh, that kind of uh, snake oil, right? So, you know, offering technologies that are not uh, not good enough, you know, simply enough. Does that answer your question, Dorm? Yeah, I mean, sure. This is this is something that uh, that I've been wondering uh, myself, and and I love the um, the Ashton Kutcher shout out because it's it it shows how bizarre this whole field is, right? So so you're looking at it from from a position of a, of a digital rights activist who doesn't have the <laughs> the star power of uh, dude where's my car um, uh, <laughs> actor and at the same time you know you see politicians that are not that are that are fawning over him basically because he he's an actor right so so maybe a follow up to my follow up to my follow I lost count but but uh, <laughs> unless we we try to sort of engage Brad Pitt or or Sylvester Stallone into this debate how are we as 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 citizens as activists as maybe even journalists how should we address this issue and how should we point out to the decision makers that you know the the field of of the debate is 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 extremely skewed that they're not they're not even i'm not going to say they're not listening to reason but they're not listening to all of the arguments and that they're going with the they're basically following the the biggest the biggest pressure point. Yeah, you know, this is something we've been asking ourselves, Domen, at the Global Encryption Coalition, because you know, uh, Ashton Kutcher is one, but uh, in in the other case in the U.S., there's a, a also an anti-encryption bill called COSA, Kids mm. Online Safety Act, and their spokesperson was Lizzo, the pop star. Mm. Um, mm. So another superstar kind of uh, endorsement, um, but I mean. Luckily, in our case, Ashton Kutcher and Lizzo have been involved in some scandal recently, both of them, uh, bad press. Uh, mm. So the problem has a little bit fixed itself for now. Of course, a, a new endorsement could come in the future from another star. But, you know, we can't attract these same names as easily, right? We don't have the resources, we don't have the money, the connections as civil society actors uh, or as regular citizens. Um, so our approach has been, well, you know, we... We need to work with the more kind of, mm, how to say, um, targeted and intellectual approach. So, for example, we've been um, talking to uh, uh, journalists in exile, for example, journalists from um, Russia, Belarus and other places that because of uh, repression from their governments have to, you know, work abroad and, you know, them echoing the importance of encryption to their work. So, you know, we, I think, need to amplify these these different use cases, whether it's, you know, journalists' use of encryption, LGBTQ use of encryption, other ones, um, which are really important stories to tell also. So I think, you know, it's a, even if we can't fight fire with fire, you know, celebrity against celebrity, um, you know, I, I think we need to appeal to more of that kind of intellectual base and also those key in the case of the eu those key eu rights fundamental rights but also values you know what does it mean to be european and bring in those voices that really i think um define us and define what we care about mm. and and speaking of of things we care about we're both uh, fellows for the for the uh, recharging uh, recharging advocacy in in eu 
um, type of fellowship that is that is run by by Hertie School from from Berlin. And mm -hmm. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the on the NGO landscape or the the activistic landscape in 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 the EU regarding digital rights. You know, you've been involved with with the Internet Society for a while, um, and do you see a change of of narrative of perception of importance? when it comes to to digital rights or or is this something that basically picks up whenever there's a grant available and dies down where there's no grants available uh well yeah um yeah i've been in this landscape for a little bit of time now and um as is the nature of civil society yeah the grants play a really key role and um yeah the ability of civil society to take stands on these issues make their voices heard i mean um, you know, luckily in the EU, we're used to these open consultation periods, right? So, so civil society actors, individuals, they can make their voices heard, right? But resources are needed to do that in an informed kind of systematic way, right? So, uh, unfortunately, in the last year or so, we have seen bigger strains on uh, uh, grants, on funding um, for civil society in Europe, uh, including, you know, privacy, privacy activists, privacy advocacy groups. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, unfortunately, I think the strain is there. At the same time, I'm really, um, how to say it, really inspired or um, impassioned by how I have seen this really strong, you know, coming together of European uh, privacy organizations. You know, there's so many people that care really deeply about these, these issues uh, who want to make their voice heard. I think the challenge is just that there, as you said, there are so many voices in this debate. It's a very difficult debate, whether it's encryption or, or other issues. Um, and so it is hard to kind of make our voices heard above the noise. So, um, yeah, to, to sum up, I would say, yeah, difficult uh, moment for, for civil society when it comes to funding. But as I said, I'm kind of inspired by how I've seen more collaboration, more working together um, and, and a real um yeah, effort to stand up against some of the most uh, harmful parts of these new proposals. Mm. And just one follow-up before we move on to the, to the last topic of the conversation. So do you see this, this passion, this energy of, of let's say, um, uh, digital human rights activists, whatever you may call it, does it trickle into the into the political debate, into the mainstream political debate in, let's say, the the, the areas that you're that you're uh, watching, or is this just something that okay, we have these crazy activists that are doing their thing, but you know the real conversation is happening someplace else, sometimes else, and yeah, doesn't does, so it, it, there's no um, there's no crossover effect, so to say. I, I think I can guess what your, your opinion is, <laughs> Dobin. Uh, I, I would say, um, yeah, it's not mainstream enough. Um, I, I, what I feel when we're, you know, I'm, I'm working a lot at the Brussels level, EU level. So there are certain political parties that do work with us a lot, engage with us. But unfortunately, those parties are often kind of sidelined as, you know, oh, well, those are the privacy nuts. You know, those are the the uh, hardcore people and they're they're like on the fringe. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. I have seen that kind of um, narrative repeating itself quite often. And so that's a big challenge for us is that, you know, when we're working in parliament, there are those partners that are very reliable that we do work with. But how do we kind of broaden our 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 support or our context with other political parties that are, you know, not uh, how to say it, you know, um, 
not as sidelined sometimes as some of these other groups. So it, it is a challenge for sure, something that um, uh, is difficult. But, you know, for me, uh, <laughs> what to be a little bit positive, maybe I would say like, you know, looking, because I have a global role. I, I do policy around the world, um, mm. so all the way from UK to Singapore. So mm. uh, at least in Europe, <laughs> we we have a voice and there is something to work with. And, you know, that's something that I experienced doing advocacy on, you know, we we're talking earlier about the UK online safety bill versus the EU proposal uh, on preventing child sexual abuse in the UK. Trust in government is super high. You know, it's one of the most trusting societies in the world. You can see that from the vaccination rate there during the pandemic, you know, people really trust their government. And mm. so when the government wants to scan, people say, well, the government must have a really good reason to do that, right? We really trust them. Mm. Here, in, here in Europe, I see that there's something for us to work with. You know, there are lots of countries in Europe that went through recent history with government surveillance, uh, you know, real uh, government abuse of power. And so I think there is a natural skepticism, um, not in all member states, but in enough of them, that the debate in Europe is much stronger and already uh, more fierce than I saw in the UK. So, so yeah, giving from my global perspective, I have a little bit more hope here in Europe. I think, mm -hmm. you know, we really can make a difference. But as you said, it could be better. It could be a lot better. Um, it could be more mainstream. Um, we could be a more valued voice. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah, pushing for I mean improvement, but a good base, I would say, for us to work with. I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be this 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 gloomy duck, but but it's basically just something that 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 bothers me every time we engage in in debates, be it on net neutrality, on encryption, on on data transfers, on biometric surveillance. We are constantly, you know, pushed back to the start line in terms of okay, here are the basics of privacy. Here is something that while in fact, you know, they're constantly lobbying, uh, like the opposition is constantly lobbying these these proposals that are clearly, you know, just not good. You know, and, and mm -hmm. this is this is what I find tiresome because you know if you had to explain like I, I often compare digital rights to to uh, digital rights activists to to eco um, eco activists right and mm -hmm. and in 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 terms of ecology and in terms of environment you know we have that baseline in terms of okay you know we have to save the environment this isn't an option this isn't there's no alternative you know we we just need to do that or we need to be mindful as we as we move forward right here in the digital rights it's all you know it's all back to the drawing board. It's all every time we we go into this these debates, not just with with people, but also with politicians, with with journalists, with 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 yeah decision makers. You're constantly you know forced to having these these same discussions, and this is this is maybe something I find tiring, right? Maybe mm -hmm. maybe I I just want you know uh, a period in time where you'd come up to a meeting and you you know you'd have a baseline established and you know you you would really maybe uh, you could really maybe hash out some of some of the details so yeah this is just yeah something that that we can we can continue uh, continue our discussion some other time but but to wrap this up uh, a more uh, <laughs> a more lighthearted uh, <laughs> lighthearted topic <laughs> the internet is falling apart
<laughs> fragmentation. <laughs> I, I saved I saved the the best for for last. So so the issue of splinternet, the the issue of of digital sovereignty, the issues uh, that are that are now cropping up between China, EU, and US. Let's say these are the main the main actors in this field. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's the what's the uh, how real is this threat of of internet falling apart? And and maybe huh, would it be such a bad thing? Oh, Doman, it would be a very bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I can I can tell you more. So yeah, in twenty twenty two, you know, last year, mm -hmm. um, the Internet Society we did quite a bit of research on uh, digital sovereignty, which is a, a term that a lot of policymakers around the world have been. I've been using. We wanted to do research on this because we were really concerned by this trend. Um, you know, uh, the main reason being that the internet is supposed to be a global resource. So when you start talking about sovereignty, that's like applying geographic borders to a global resource, right? And with a lot of potential unintended consequences, negative consequences for some countries, you know, purposeful consequences. Uh, so, you know, we wanted to dig into this a little bit. Um, you know, the kind of high level finding was that, you know, this term digital sovereignty, very trendy, you know, it's used by different governments to justify so many different policy objectives. Um, when we talk about the EU, uh, there's not a single definition like at all, uh, but we see kind of two main understandings of digital sovereignty. So one, the first one, I would say it's about diversify, diversifying the supply chain, right? So reducing reliance on the import of certain technological components. So, you know, the really classic example here would be semiconductors that we import these from East Asia, Taiwan, China, South Korea, et cetera. And this could be a vulnerability for us, like, you know, as Europeans in the future, right? That's a really classic example. But uh, we're seeing this concept also being applied to the internet a lot, right? So as I said, you know, inter internet infrastructure, it's global, it's global by design and it's decentralized, uh, which means that it does not operate within national boundaries, it's, it's, you know, across the globe. Um, you know, understandably, this maybe gives policymakers anxiety sometimes, you know, there's that feeling that events happening somewhere else in the world could impact Europe's access to the internet or the resilience of the internet in, in Europe. And I think that these anxieties maybe were always there, but they were really elevated uh, when the war in Ukraine started, because uh, if you remember, there were these uh, unsuccessful calls from Ukraine to disconnect Russia from the global internet. Um, so, you know, this really kind of brought that moment of tension up that, you know, if can, can a country be cut off from the internet? Okay, if Russia was cut off, could we be the next country cut off? And, you know, it really kind of escalated all of these discussions about, um, you know, reliance on, on key parts of infrastructure. So, yeah, this would be the first understanding of the EU. And then the second one that we see quite often, it's about uh, competition. So, you know, that's about Europe wanting to support the growth of local service providers um, that would be legitimate alternatives to large foreign providers. So usually, you know, policymakers will talk about this for the surface layer of the internet. So, you know, social media, search engines, email, all dominated mostly by, let's say, American, sometimes Chinese providers. Uh, you know, so what if I want to use a European one? There's no good option, right? So that's where the conversation usually goes. But we also see it going towards the internet infrastructure layer as well. And I think the reason for this is that there's the perception that, you know, if Europe wants to be a really strong player in this field, it needs to somehow play a key role in running infrastructure, you know, in including internet infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And there's some sort of view from policymakers, a link that they make that, you know, uh, which is correct, which is like internet access is really key to innovation and prosperity. But there's also this kind of unspoken belief from them 
that if Europe were to control the internet more and provide it to the world, you know, control the global internet, that it will somehow generate wealth for Europe. So there's this like kind of unspoken feeling that, you know, with competition, Europe needs to be more involved in, in the infrastructure. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the two main uses we see in the EU, but then outside of the EU, you know, digital sovereignty is also a very common term, right? And so the kind of classic OG original use of the term was um, more from authoritarian regimes, which really was about state sovereignty in the digital realm. So this was, you know, controlling the flow of information on the internet. And so in countries that were slightly, that are slightly more democratic, they might justify this saying, you know, that the state needs to protect against disinformation, you know, to protect people. But then in a more authoritarian context, it might be about filtering content, you know, that threatens the legitimacy of the state, or, you know, that might mean suppressing uh, genuine new kind of dissident or opposition messages. So kind of really authoritarian stuff, right? Um, and just to wrap this up, the fourth kind of and final uh, meaning of digital sovereignty we see is, uh, and unfortunately it's quite rare, is a sovereignty of the individual. So that would be more about empowering internet users so that they can decide how, when, and with who their data is shared and, and used. So yeah, kind of these four main variations of what the term can mean. And because it's so flexible, it's really attractive, I think, to policymakers to use these, these terms because it can be used to justify, you know, so many different uh, different policy outcomes. Um, mm. so, here's, a, yeah. here's a rhetorical question. Do you see that as a as a big problem? So in terms that, you know, the the Chinese and the, the EU decision makers can can maybe even agree on the on the issue of, of digital sovereignty, but because it because the, the term means, you know, it, it's basically completely completely opposite. Um, if you look at the Chinese uh, digital rights political spectrum and, and the European one, you know, this is basically something that 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 needs to be uh, determined before we you know, have an actual discussion about what to do with, with it and and how to how to how to tread these waters. Yeah, it's a, it's it's totally a risk. You know, uh, when when the term is not defined and so vague and so flexible, it uh, it can mean that two parties are agreeing on something uh, that they mean you know something totally different. And you, you mentioned China, but I mean, Domen, even inside the EU, you know, let's say if I generalize very widely, let's say that in France, this kind of competition narrative is the main driving force of digital sovereignty. And so they really care about, you know, where are the French providers, where are, where are our French companies? Um, but then when they're talking to the Germans and the Ger Germans understand ger digital sovereignty more as, you know, diversification of the supply chain. So France and Germany can come together and agree on digital sovereignty, actually meaning, you know, kind of different things, right? So uh, I, yeah, I think there is a, a big risk. And, you know, you, you ask about China, China was the first country to use this term. They're the ones mm -hmm. that came up with this term, right? Um, I think it was around 20 years ago or so. And, um, uh, you know, a quote from Xi Jinping, uh, when he talked about digital sovereignty, he said, this is the right of each nation state to choose its own path of cyber development and own model of regulation and internet policies without interference from other countries. So, you know, that statement alone, it's really in polar opposite to this global infrastructure that we understand uh, you know, he really understands as applying this national boundary to the internet. Um, you know, so it, it is something, you know, very concerning, something we want to watch for in multilateral fora, you know, um, where China, the EU, the US, other key players will really probably be fighting out um, what they understand uh, this means. And when you have Europe using the same terms as China, it's it, it's a recipe for disaster, in, in my opinion.
Mm-hmm. And do you see? So, so we're slowly wrapping up. But, but do you yeah. see the upcoming EU elections uh, uh, sort of like a like a tipping point for? Let's let's call it the umbrella of 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 uh, human rights on online or in in the information society. Do you see a new generation of of policymakers coming up and rising, I guess, to the challenge of yeah of everything that we've we've talked about and and more, obviously. Uh, yeah, I think the 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 next EU elections will be will be really key um, because as we we just identified, you know, this all also has. Um, uh, kind of multilateral diplomatic policy uh, aspect as well. So, you know, uh, the EU uh, historically has o- always claimed um, that they're for an open, unfragmented internet. You know, that's that's a, a statement that the EU has made in the past. So um, if we really are going to stick to this and, you know, uh, abide by it, then moving forward, that would really hopefully continue to uh, shape, um, our, I don't know, the values and the policies that come out of the EU uh, that's actually been very helpful for our for our advocacy. You know, um, when there have been proposals from the EU that use the term digital sovereignty, for example, there was uh, NIST two, which was the cybersecurity directive, or there was mm-hmm. the uh, DNS for EU, which was about DNS resiliency. Um, you know, in those cases, we could point to the EU and say, "Well, you're, you're against fragmenting the internet, but these proposals might have risks for for internet fragmentation." You know, are, are you aware of these risks? And it was a really good kind of uh, opening and talking points. So uh, I think for the new elections, it really, you know, uh, will these values kind of remain? Will they change? Uh, I think it's a really important breaking point where we can, as Europeans, can either become stronger or we can step back. And I, I think that's really important. And we'll have to see how it how it kind of goes. Hmm. Uh, my question uh, regarding the, the new generation of, of decision makers is because that We've seen, like in 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 the last year or maybe in the last two years, you know, a flood of of regulatory frameworks coming out from from the EU that are that are addressing, you know, the the artificial intelligence, the the, sim- yeah. the digital disinformation campaign, and all of these, at least to me, seem very rushed, seem very unproven to work, and and. It also it almost feels like they're just doing this because they they feel they need to do something, but they don't really know even what the what the actual issue is, and and this is something that's very worrying because as we've already mentioned, you know the uneven playing field of discussion, the pressure groups, mm-hmm. the 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 lobbying, the the interest groups from from different. Uh, from different public and or private sector are are you know uh, uh, gearing up, and so so th- that was my my so I was trying to sort of get a get a reaction is the is the situation or do you think the situation will improve will it stay the same yeah yeah no it's a it's a it's a great 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 question uh, yeah there's been a huge rush of. Uh... So many new proposals, so many new regulations coming in. Um, I have to tell you, these are all actually related to digital sovereignty as well, because um, you know, there's this high-level strategy document that the EU has. It's called Europe Fit for the Digital Age. Um, and they use the term digital sovereignty there. And technically, all of these regulations, you know, D- Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, European Chips Act, AI Act, etc., they all fall under that high-level strategy, right? So mm. we can say pretty authorita- authoritatively that um 
digital sovereignty is driving this. And I think the kind of unspoken thing here is that Europe is falling behind. You know, um, when you look at the providers, you see domination by the US and like a lesser extent by China. So where is the EU in all of this? How can the EU be a leader? Well, some will answer, at least we can be the leaders in regulation and we can, you know, have the success of GDPR. So let's be first movers in these other areas too. And that's how we can maybe, you know, create a, uh, I don't know, a niche for ourselves. And uh, there's also kind of that view, right, that if the EU has stronger regulations, that that could also create uh, a good environment for alternative providers, right? So maybe providers that are more compliant with EU values and users will want to use those providers as opposed to the US big tech, right? I mean, these are all kind of, um, uh, it's all guesswork at this point. But uh, I think I think that's at the heart of it, right? It's like the EU wanting to find leadership in a new area that if we can't be the providers, at least let us be the regulators. And I think that really pushes this huge influx all at once of, of so much stuff. Mm. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kalen, for, for, for your thoughts, for this, for this wonderful, wonderful discussions on, on issues related to, to internet, digital rights and, and human rights in the digital sphere. Um, this was a Citizen T episode uh, published on the 15th of October. We publish an episode every month, so we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Caleb, and best of luck. Thanks for having me.